Well, welcome to you all, uh, and thank you all for coming along to tonight's event, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership Implications for Multilateral Economic Governance. This event is jointly hosted by the LSE's Department of Law and the Institute of Public Affairs. The Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, currently under negotiation between the United States and the European Union, has the potential to transform the way we govern international economic affairs, uh, not only transatlantically but also globally. And tonight, I think we are very lucky to have three participants, two speakers and a chair, who have tremendous experience of and interest in the field of international economic governance going back more than 30 years. Our chair, Ambassador Pekka Hutanyemi, is currently the Finnish ambassador to the United Kingdom. And during the Uruguay round of multilateral trade negotiations, he served as Minister Councillor and Deputy Permanent Representative to the GATT in the permanent mission of Finland. And I shall leave the introduction of the other speakers to him. A few small housekeeping announcements. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank the events team of the Law Department for an impeccably organised event. The uh, event tonight will be recorded and a link to the recording will be posted on the website of the Department of Law. And there will be questions, there will be time for questions at the end. Uh, given the number of people here, I would, uh, I would ask you to keep your questions uh, uh, courteously direct and to the point. It remains just for me to pass over to Ambassador Hutanyemi and thank you all again for coming. <clears throat> well, thank you very much, Andrew, for this uh, kick-off of the event, and very warm welcome also on my behalf to this very timely event with uh, our eminent panelists. Uh, before introducing them, maybe a few words about my own background, which probably explains why I have been asked to, to moderate tonight's discussion Andrew already mentioned that I had a role in the Uruguay round. Yes, indeed, I was the Nordic coordinator and spokesman for agriculture, which was quite a challenging task because of the differences of the various Nordic countries in their agricultural policies. Uh, already in, during the Tokyo round in the 70s, I had the pleasure of being uh, a Finnish delegate to the preparatory committee in, the 19, in 1973 when Tokyo round, the previous round, was launched. But then I had already moved to other responsibilities when the round itself was being carried out and ultimately concluded in, in 1979. Um, during my Geneva years, during the Uruguay round, I had the pleasure also of being, being member of three GATT dispute settlement panels, which is, believe me, quite an interesting and unique experience. Then I was back in Geneva in the, in the latter part of the 1990s. Then Finland had already joined the EU. We, our role was different in WTO, which had then uh, already been established. And I did not have so much to do with, uh, with um, WTO because, uh, as you know, in Geneva, the EU countries are represented largely by the Commission on WTO Affairs. But I nevertheless had, had again, 
the chance to serve as the chairman of the trade policy review body, which scrutinizes the trade policies of various member states, contracting parties, and I was pleased to be a Finnish delegate in the ministerial meetings of Seattle and then later in Doha, which paved the way to the launching of the Doha Round. And my last uh, direct links with uh, WTO go back to the latter part of last decade when I was uh, based in Helsinki as an undersecretary for trade in my ministry. Then I represented Finland at and also chaired during the Finnish presidency 2006 EU's trade policy committee. And uh, during my watch then, this Doha round had some quite dramatic and uh, delicate also some promising moments, which nevertheless did not result in the final agreements, which still, as we know, are eluding us in most areas which were originally covered by, by the round, the Doha round. But the main role here tonight will be played by our panelists. If I start with uh, Mr. Ignacio Garcia Barcero, to the left, he is currently uh, director at the Directorate General for Trade at the European Commission in Brussels. And among his many responsibilities and duties, he is the EU's chief negotiator for the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, TTIP, tonight's topic. He holds uh, law degrees from the UCM University of Madrid and University College here in London. He started his career uh, in the Commission during the Uruguay Round in 1987 and ever since has worked in numerous trade-related policy areas in the Commission, including trade safeguards, reviews, review of GATT articles and the functioning of uh, the GATT, trade and environment, trade and competition, dispute settlement, as well as the trade-related aspects of sustainable development. In recent years, he has been in charge of uh, EU's bilateral trade relations with South and Southeast Asia, Korea, as well as with the EU's, part EU's partners in the Mediterranean region and Middle East. And I al already mentioned his current central role as the EU's chief negotiator on the TTIP. He has authored several papers and publications on the subjects of, subject of trade laws, systemic aspects of the GATT and WTO safeguard measures, and interplay of trade and competition policies, as well as on bilateral and multilateral dispute settlement mechanisms. Mr. Pascal Lamy is interestingly currently referred to by uh, Wikipedia as, quote, a French political advisor and businessman, unquote. But I think we all remember him particularly as the Director General of the WTO during eight years from 2005 2000, until 2013. He studied economics, business and management in the great French institutions of Sciences Po, HEC and ENA, went into politics uh, already in the late 1960s, became in the early 80s a close advisor of Jacques Delors and Pierre Morois when they were serving respectively as uh, economics and finance minister and prime minister of France under President Mitterrand. 
And then he was 10 years head of cabinet of Jacques Delors when Monsieur Delors was president of the EU Commission from 1984 to 1994. Thereafter, he moved to banking in Paris, became number two at Crédit Lyonnais, but came soon, 1999, back to Brussels as the trade commissioner of the EU in the Prodi Commission, which job he had until 2004, after which he was appointed director general of the WTO in Geneva, succeeding Dr. Supatshai of Thailand. Also, Mr. Lamy has authored many publications, including a recent one titled, quote, The Geneva Consensus, Making Trade Work for All, unquote, which seems to be very pertinent also in, the, in view of tonight's debate. The panelists have been asked to talk about the TTIP's implications for multilateral economic integration. So the idea is not to focus on the remaining sensitive, unsettled issues of the TTIP negotiations, but uh, rather to look at the, question of, <clears throat> at the question of this project's, TTIP project's potential impact on multilateralism in global economic governance. The TTIP is, as we know, one of many ongoing bilateral efforts which have been launched in recent years in a situation where the multilateral WTO path towards further trade liberalization and establishment of globally applicable rules has been tedious and without spectacular results. Surely the WTO has nevertheless played, simply because it exists and it has its regular activities, it has played a stabilizing role in the global economy, helping, for example, the international trading system withstand most of the protectionist pressures which always have a tendency to emerge in times of economic hardships and crises. But many countries seem to have drawn the conclusion that it might be more productive to pursue trade liberalization and harmonization or approximation of regulatory systems rather on a bilateral or plurilateral basis. Now, this state of affairs, uh, this vista, raises a few fundamental questions regarding the future of the global multilateral trading system. <clears throat> Firstly, how can we ensure that these bilateral efforts remain really truly complementary to the work which is pursued at the multilateral level in Geneva. Are there, for example, enough resources in the various administrations to cope with so many parallel <coughs> negotiations at the same time? Secondly, how can the results of these bilateral agreements be fed back into the multilateral process and help re-energize the multilateral negotiations? Is this likely to be an easier route to global understandings than by pushing directly on multilateral WTO platform in, in Geneva? <clears throat> and thirdly, how will the parties to these new bilateral agreements, like TTIP, handle their relations with third countries? As it is obvious that uh, these agreements will potentially impact even heavily, on other important trading nations. Should these uh, new bilateral agreements be open for willing 
countries to join in? Is it likely that these third countries may have misgivings regarding the compatibility of these bilateral agreements with the existing WTO legislation? Questions like these, I hope, will uh, sort of dominate tonight's discussions. So my hope is that our panelists uh, focus on issues like these in their opening remarks, about 15 minutes from both of them, and then after that there will be ample time for questions from the floor and uh, answers from the podium. So with these words, may I ask uh, Pascal Lamy perhaps to kick off and uh, make his observations. Well, thank you, Mr. Ambassador, for this introduction, and thanks to the LSE uh, for the invitation. This uh, issue of the relationship uh, between the multilateral trade regime and other trade regimes, whether bilateral, uh, regional, or even uh, unilateral, uh, has been a classical topic of uh, academic uh, trade literature. And that is, uh, in many ways, to the surprise of uh, trade practitioners, uh, because those who trade uh, don't bother a lot about conceptual uh, schemes. Uh, they uh, just, on the whole, uh, want trade uh, to be more open. And as the Chinese uh, proverb goes, uh, they don't mind the color of the cat, uh, provide, uh, provided uh, the cat catches mice. And this explains the sort of discrepancy between the huge importance of this topic, again, for academics uh, and students, uh, and uh, it's limited, so far at least, uh, importance in reality. And yet, as the Ambassador just said, this contrast uh, between a new wave of uh, mega-regional uh, negotiations and the difficulties in the multilateral negotiations have uh, once more redirected the uh, spotlight on this topic. Now, my own take uh, uh, on this issue, which I will explain uh, briefly now, is that this uh, articulation between different trade regimes uh, never was a serious problem in the old world of trade, whereas it probably uh, deserves more attention uh, in the new world of trade. Now, what's the difference between the old world of trade uh, and the new world of trade? And we are in uh, a transition uh, between these two worlds. To put it very simply, uh, the old world of trade uh, was a world where production was national, and obstacle to trade that limit market access uh, were mostly about protecting producers from uh, foreign competition. That's the world of trade that started uh, when the King of Crete uh, negotiated the first uh, Treaty of Commerce with the Pharaoh of Egypt until roughly now. The new world of trade is uh, quite different. Uh, it's a world where production has become international, 
or more precisely transnational, and it's a world where uh, obstacles to trade uh, stem from uh, not measures, the purpose of which is to protect the producer, but from uh, measures, the purpose of which is to protect the consumer. Or, more precisely, the obstacle doesn't stem so much from the measure, it stems from the discrepancies in the way precaution uh, for the benefit of the consumer is uh, administered uh, by various countries. So these two worlds are very different. One is a world of protection, another one is a world of precaution. And TTIP, uh, which will run uh, through our discussion tonight, uh, is uh, the first example of a trade agreement which would fit with this new world. Now, why uh, was, in my view, uh, this uh, issue of uh, compatibility, uh, uh, convergence, coexistence, complementarity uh, between various regimes uh, not a problem in the old world? Because, as I said, uh, the old world was a world where mostly tariffs uh, had as a purpose to protect uh, domestic producers. Uh, and you had a multilateral regime with a sort of least uh, common denominator, and you had MFN plus systems uh, where tariffs uh, were lower than in the multilateral system, uh, so-called uh, tariff preferences, and that was also true in terms of uh, market access for services, who do not have tariffs but who also have uh, through usually regulatory practice, uh, market access uh, impediments. That has never been a problem for a simple reason, uh, which is that uh, the more tariff preferences you establish bilaterally or regionally or unilaterally, the less preferences uh, there are in the system. It's a pure mathematical issue. Uh, if A gives the preference to B, uh, fine, uh, but uh, A will then give a preference to C, thus eroding the preference A gave to B, and B will give a preference to, C, to D, thus eroding the preference B gave to A. And at the end of the day, you multiply the A, B, C, D, and at the end of the day, you have an, an asymptote which mathematically is uh, zero. So, in this old world, there is a sort of automatic convergence between uh, bilateral and uh, multilateral. Preferences are self-eroding, thus conducing to a multilateral zero. Now, of course, this is not 100% true. There are other problems with the rules of origin, for instance, because if you give a preference, you need to give a passport to the good to which you give a preference which, by the way, explains why, uh, in theory, 50% of world trade should be conducted through preferential regimes. In reality, not more than 15 or 20%, because many people uh, get, go to the MFN tariff instead of having uh, to endure uh, the cost of the red tape of uh, rules of origin. Of course, 
there is still a difference between uh, multilateral and bilateral because some of the unfair trade practices are out of reach of bilateral preferences. For instance, uh, subsidies. If you subsidize uh, your chicken, uh, you won't make a segregation between a bilateral chicken and a multilateral chicken. So in some areas, this uh, distinction doesn't operate. It also may create problems because this notion that you can go multilateral plus is true for tariffs, but it's also true for issues like intellectual property, for instance. And you have bilaterally some intellectual property agreements that protect intellectual property more than the TRIPS, which is the standard for the multilateral regime, thus creating a number of problems. But, again, it never was a real issue in the old world of trade, which is, by the way, why this famous Article 24 of GATT, which basically establishes that in order uh, not to apply uh, the multilateral regime, you have to uh, liberalize essentially all trade, uh, which is a fairly vague uh, definition, uh, as we all know, uh, has remained vague and was never really a serious topic of surveillance uh, by the GATT and the WTO system. The principle is there that in order to derogate to the MFN, you have to do something specific, but the weight and the seriousness of this obligation uh, never really was tested. And the reason why it wasn't tested is because it didn't need to be tested because it wasn't a real problem. Now, let's go to the new world of trade, uh, where this issue of uh, coexistence, articulation, uh, probably is a more serious issue. Why? Because as I said, uh, in this new world of trade, obstacles to trade uh, stem from discrepancies in the regulatory regimes, the main purpose of which is to administer a precaution. Uh, and uh, thus, if you want to level the playing field in this new world of trade, you have to level these differences which is called regulatory convergence, uh, harmonization, approximation. I don't insist on the various ways to do that, whether harmonization, whether mutual recognition. We can come back to that uh, later in the discussion. But in theory, bilateral regulatory convergence does not lead automatically to multilateral regulatory convergence. On the contrary, let's assume uh, uh, in TTIP, uh, US and EU agree on a standard for crash tests for cars, which then leads to a harmonization of safety equipment for cars. Uh, if uh, Japan and Korea uh, have a bilateral agreement where they adopt a different standard, which in theory is possible, then uh, not only do you not have convergence, but you have divergence. Instead of multilaterally leveling the playing field, you create ruptures between regulatory systems, which then become obstacle to trade. 
Now, this is the theoretical approach. In reality, it all depends on uh, who is uh, the standard setter. And this is where, uh, once more, the TTIP comes in. Uh, the uh, sort of obscure, unadvertised, uh, real strategic purpose of the TTIP probably being uh, to make sure that EU and US, who have in this world of today the highest, the most sophisticated system of precaution administration as compared to other systems, uh, become the standard setters. For instance, in uh, harmonization of car uh, safety equipments, and the odds are that although the theory would say otherwise, in reality, if you and US succeed in agreeing on the parameters of crash tests, hence on safety equipment, so that uh, US cars uh, will have uh, uh, medium bumpers uh, instead of having big bumpers, and EU cars will have medium bumpers of, or instead of having small bumpers, which has a big impact on the cost of cars. The reality is probably that if they do that, Korea and Japan will have to match the standard because that would be, that will be the easiest and the less costly route uh, to trade. And what is true for crash tests for cars is true for uh, pesticide residues in flowers or ractopamine in, uh, in pork meat, which are, let's say, reasonably scientific issues uh, where it becomes more difficult, and we will come back to that. I'm sure in the discussion is uh, where the convergence is about things which are much more sensitive, much more linked to cultures, to tradition, to sensitivities which uh, people have, such as, for instance, uh, data privacy uh, or uh, GMOs. So the reality is that probably in this new world of trade, the ones that will create the first step will have a big uh, first uh, mover advantage, and the one that is intended to create this first step is TTIP, not TPP, which is this Trans-Pacific Partnership. I know my good friend, the USTR, doesn't like me to say that, but TPP is the last of the old generations of trade agreements, the one that started between the King of Crete and the Pharaoh of Egypt, uh, because it's mostly about classical market access, even if there is a little bit more, whereas TTIP is the first of the new generation. Now, this de facto supremacy, which would be given uh, to US and EU if TTIP uh, was to work, uh, which remains to be seen, uh, of course raises uh, problems of transparency and of legitimacy. Assuming it gets to its purpose, which is leveling uh, the regulatory differences in areas where this is possible, and there will be areas where this is possible, but there will also be areas where this is not possible, this of course raises the question of what's the impact on trade partners third countries, whether 
countries who have specific trade relationships with the EU on the one side or with the US on the other side. Think about Mexico and Canada, who are uh, with the US in NAFTA. Think in Europe about countries like uh, Switzerland, uh, Turkey, Norway, who do most of their trade with the European Union and who have bilateral trade agreements uh, with the European Union. This raises a question for them. Now, not again, according to uh, academic literature, uh, because this would be a big problem in uh, creating trade diversion. <coughs> if you look at the reality, at the way the system works, there is a huge benefit for third countries, for instance, in EU and US uh, adopting a similar regulation uh, because they will benefit from the economy of scale in exporting to this larger market. Instead of having one uh, 300 and one 500, they'll have a one 800, which is, by the way, what happened uh, when the uh, EU started the internal market in 85. Remember all this buzz at the time about Fortress Europe, nothing of that never ever happened, you know, this buzz about Fortress Europe evaporated simply because if Europeans, which they did partially, create a level playing field within Europe, this is to the benefit of exporters into uh, the European market. Yet, yet, I don't think this is a totally sufficient uh, answer to this question of transparency and of legitimacy, and I personally believe that the right way to handle this multilateral optimum option in this new world of regulatory harmonization is probably, probably uh, one, to revamp Article 24, which is about tariff preferences in adjusting this notion to some sort of a regulatory preference, and second, uh, to entrust a multilateral organization, preferably WTO, uh, because you always have to try and build on what exists rather than creating new things, entrusting WTO with a mandate, the purpose of which would be to monitor these processes of regulatory convergence in ensuring, notably, something which is extremely important for third countries and which is transparency. Again, not that it is a concrete issue for business people, but this is, in my view, a legitimate political question. So that probably, that probably in my view, uh, would be uh, the way to go. A short word before I conclude on another aspect of the TTIP and of modern trade agreements in this uh, new world, uh, which uh, by coincidence uh, combine trade and investment. One of the differences between the old world and the new world is also that the intimacy between trade and investment is much closer than it used to be because of these global uh, value chains, which is the explanation why production has basically move from being national uh, to being transnational. And this issue of the compatibility, uh, the coexistence, the synergy between bilateral investment regimes and something of a multilateral investment regime is also raised. 
And you can see that in the skirmishes uh, about TTIP uh, with the investor-to-state dispute settlement, which is an old story. The reality being that most bilateral uh, trade investments that exist today do include, at least in the case of EU and US, an investor-to-state dispute settlement, which is a specific channel outside uh, normal court systems, uh, whereas there's, as we all know, nothing like a multilateral uh, system uh, following uh, the failure of the multilateral investment agreement, uh, which was negotiated at the OECD in the 1990s. Conclusion on this, and notably in the perspective of uh, TTIP, which again is, uh, in my view, sort of uh, on a 50% probability for the moment, for reasons I have explained, by the way, here a few few weeks ago. Uh, There is clearly a difference in the way EU and US look at this issue of compatibility uh, between bilateral and multilateral. If you look at uh, dinner speeches, uh, which uh, do not matter a lot, what matters is what happens on uh, Monday, not on the dinner speech on Sunday, but which give an indication uh, the U.S. are displaying a vision uh, that, uh, for them, uh, trade is something which has a lot to do with the strategic, with geopolitics, with security. Uh, whereas the EU has always had a sort of dinner speech uh, software uh, which is about uh, we love multilateral, Uh, this is our preference, Uh, this is where, by the way, and that's true, this is where we developed a comparative advantage which stems from the habit we have of discussing this uh, more than bilaterally within the EU. So, in theory, EU should have an answer to this question more than the U.S., who in many ways do not bother, uh, not least because they invented in the 90s, uh, this notion of a competitive liberalization, uh, which the EU never was very comfortable with. Now, whether the EU has an answer to this question, whether in practicing negotiations like TTIP, they will have to take the lead in outlining a more clear, more sophisticated, more substantial answer to this question of how do you ensure multilateral and bilateral convergence in a world of regulatory uh, convergence uh, remains to be seen, uh, but uh, we hopefully uh, will have a clearer view of that uh, after my uh, good friend uh, Ignacio has uh, taken the floor. Thanks for your attention. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, and I think your last remarks are an excellent introduction to the contribution of Ignacio explaining the EU view on many of these issues that you raised in your own intervention. Please. Well, thank you very much, and of course it's always a very big uh, challenge to speak uh, after Pascal Lamy, particularly here because uh, 28 years ago I was a student uh, 
in London, and I used to come often to LSE to do research about the gut. So now coming back here to talk about the implications of what we are doing bilaterally on the global trading system is quite, um, is quite an interesting opportunity. What I would like to do is to basically identify three areas in which the TTIP, if properly negotiated, can have a positive global spillover which goes beyond the mere bilateral trade relationship between the United States and the European Union. And then in the end, make a few comments about possible implications for the future WTO agenda and the question about whether one should envisage that the TTIP could become an open agreement that other countries could join. Now, let me start by saying that uh, before uh, we started uh, these negotiations, both the United States and the European Union, uh, perhaps each one of us for their own reasons, were very conscious that it was more than a mere bilateral negotiation and that the fact that we had decided to embark uh, on the negotiation like this would inevitably have uh, global uh, implications for the trading uh, system. We came to the conclusion that these global implications would be, in overall terms, positive. Now, in my view, there are three main areas in which the TTIP can't potentially have a positive global impact. The first one is that I would very much agree with Pascal Lamy that the TTIP is potentially the first 21st century agreement in tackling regulatory issues but we should not forget that you cannot do a 21st century agreement without also solving 19th century trade issues which are still out there. And I think the first thing that we need to be able to demonstrate, having launched this negotiation with the United States, is that we are able to conclude a free trade agreement which is of a very high level of ambition from the point of view of WTO Article 24, Article 5 standards. So I think we need to bear in mind that the United States and the European Union would certainly not be credible in the global trading system if at the end of the day the agreement that we negotiate is not very ambitious on the elimination of tariffs, is not very ambitious on services, and is not very ambitious on government procurement. And these are the three key pillars of a classical market access package. We have now concluded, I think, a very ambitious agreement with Canada. Canada is not the United States of America, but at the end of the day, we would aim to ensure that the agreement that we conclude with the United States has a similar level of ambition on classical market access issues. Even here, I think apart from the demonstration effect, there is a potential significant positive spillover on what we are doing. You cannot negotiate a trade agreement without harmonizing or otherwise reconciling the rules of origin. And if we manage to agree on rules of origin between the United States and the European Union, which are trade facilitating, this could potentially have a significant global effect. 
it could open the door to, to look also into the other trade agreements which the European Union and the United States have negotiated. And eventually, why not, but might uh, be able to consider some possibility of doing some multilateral work on preferential rules of origin, which up to recently has been uh, something that uh, was considered to be uh, quite uh, not achievable in a multilateral trading uh, setting. So there, I would say, this a first uh, potential positive uh, spillover um, uh, effect. Secondly, as uh, Pascal has said, uh, the TTIP is the first trade agreement in which regulatory issues are going to be discussed and negotiated between two highly regulated uh, uh, economies of an equivalent level of development and of similar size. And that, of course, is a totally different uh, proposition from the way in which regulatory issues have been discussed so far on trade agreements, where always you used to have one of the two partners which had, uh, if you want, an hegemonic role in the discussion of regulatory matters. And that clearly cannot be the way for an agreement to be reached between the European Union and the United States uh, of uh, America. Now, in looking into how to tackle regulatory issues, I think uh, that it is perhaps useful to, to classify regulatory divergences into three, three boxes. First, there are certain regulatory divergences which are the result of clear policy choices. And where that is the case, let's be clear, one should not even try to, to solve those regulatory divergences because they are deeply enshrined in the culture and in the political regime of each of the two, of the two, of the two entities. And trying to find uh, a way forward in those areas would just simply condemn uh, this agreement uh, to, to, to unworkability. I mean, just two examples, uh, there's clear understanding that the way that uh, GMOs are regulated in Europe and in the United States is very different. We are not going to change the way that we uh, regulate uh, GMOs. And, of course, the United States is not going to change the way that it does either. Another good example is chemicals. Now, we decided uh, a few years ago to adopt uh, a strict regulatory regime for chemicals in the European Union. It is true that there is a political debate in the United States with some states which are adopting similar legislation, but at the end of the day it is clear that a choice by the United States to go to a higher level of regulation of the chemical sector is not something which can be the consequence of a trade negotiation. So where you have divergences which are the result of a clear policy choice, I think that the wise approach to take, and I think it's the approach which we are taking in this negotiation, is just to simply recognize that differences are going to remain. Then you have a second uh, category, which are the, the issues which potentially would be simpler, where when you actually look into the details of the regulatory regimes, you realize that you are just simply unnecessarily replicating resources. A good example would be inspections for good manufacturing practices. This is something that both the Food and Drug Administration in the United States does and that European regulators do. There is no real justification to duplicate inspections, 
provided that you have enough trust between the two regulators to accept that the inspection which has been done by the other party has the same value as the inspection that you would do yourself. What you need at that point in time is to ensure that uh, you have created the mechanisms that uh, reflect that mutual trust. And certainly there is the most challenging area, areas where in principle there is no real difference in policy choice. But for historical reasons, the way in which regulations have developed are very different uh, in the United States and in the European uh, Union. In the case of the European Union, it is more frequently the case uh, that our regulations are based uh, on the work which has been done in international organizations. In the case of the United States, because their regulatory regime is, if I may say so, a little bit more inward-looking than the, than the European regulatory regime, these regulations have been developed in a predominantly domestic setting. And as a result of that, the regulations are often different without, on the other hand, necessarily reflecting a different level of protection. A good example would be tech safety regulations on cars. This is an area where most people would argue that at the end of the day it's not that the Americans want to have safer cars than European cars. It just so happens that the regulations have been developed differently, and in those cases you have basically two choices. If you can demonstrate that the differences have no impact on the level of protection, then you can mutually recognize regulations. If at the end of the day this is not possible, then the option that you have is to harmonize, but preferably to do it not on a purely bilateral basis, but on the basis of work in international organizations, like the UNEC in Geneva. Which brings me to the positive spillovers of the regulatory agenda. The more that as a result of TTIP, you have a situation in which progressively regulations and standards in the European Union and in the United States are sufficiently close to either be common to regulations and standards or to be mutually recognized, the more that this would also have a potential positive effect on certain countries in the sense that a single regulatory framework would apply for their exports both to the United States and to the European Union, and the more that also the United States and the European Union would be able to have an influence in the development of global regulatory regimes. Now, the third area where I think potentially there can be a positive spillover effect has to do with reconciling the traditional approaches that the United States and the European Union have been following to certain issues in their bilateral trade agreements. Now, I would not want to be very long because I think that it would be good to have time for the discussion, but when you look into issues like the role, of labor, <coughs> the, role, <coughs> sorry, the role of labor and environment in the trade agreements, competition policy, geographical indications, an area where traditionally the United States and the European Union have had uh, very divergent uh, approaches, or indeed uh, the issue of investor-to-state uh, dispute settlement uh, and investment protection, the significance of what we do or what we do not do in the TTIP is not merely a bilateral one. 
it would inevitably send a signal that goes beyond the pure bilateral uh, uh, relationship. Now, this does not mean that if we agree on something with the United States, uh, we can expect uh, other countries to follow automatically. But it is clear that if we do not reconcile the uh, differences of view between the United States and the European Union on issues like the ones uh, that I have mentioned, it's very difficult to imagine that it would ever be possible to develop uh, rules uh, of, a broader, uh, of a broader application. Now, this brings me to the two final uh, comments, which is um, impact on the WTO and the question of TTIP uh, as a potential uh, open uh, agreement. Now, it is clear that uh, at this point in time, uh, no one in Geneva wants to discuss too much what would happen uh, in the medium term in the WTO, since everyone recognizes that first one needs to find uh, a resolution one way or another to the Doha development uh, uh, agenda. It seems to me, however, that in a world in which the TTP and the TTIP uh, would have been uh, concluded, inevitably the question would arise on uh, what is going to be the future agenda in the WTO. And that may well imply a combination uh, of a reinforced uh, monitoring function, which I think is what uh, Pascal has alluded to, but also, perhaps, why not, uh, or it may require some uh, adjustments in the way that the WTO does its business, to identify some areas where rules can still be developed within the WTO framework on some of the issues which currently are not sufficiently covered by the multilateral rules. However, in order to reach that point, it's clear that uh, some changes in the way that uh, the WTO function would probably be uh, unavoidable. As to the question of the TTIP uh, as an open platform, now we are seriously reflecting upon it. We haven't yet uh, taken the policy decision, and this is something that we would want uh, to debate uh, fully with, uh, with our member states, with the European Parliament. Certainly there is one particular case on which we see a very strong argument uh, to have uh, a way of bringing the country closely associated to the TTIP once uh, the TTIP is concluded, which is the case of Turkey, because, as you know, Turkey has a customs union with, uh, with, uh, with the European Union. Um, it is clear that it would be an unsustainable situation if we were going to conclude a free trade agreement uh, with the United States, and the United States was not going to be ready to negotiate a free trade agreement uh, with uh, Turkey. So one way or another, I think uh, we need to find a solution to, to, the, to the question of the relationship of Turkey um, with, um, with the TTIP negotiations. Now, whether this means that we need to try to find more systemically the idea that uh, TTIP, once it is concluded, uh, could be open for other countries under certain conditions to join is a complicated issue. It's something that, uh, quite frankly, we still think that it needs a lot of uh, reflection in terms of how it would actually uh, work, uh, work uh, in, in practice. Uh, so for the time being, we still haven't come to a definitive uh, view on that, uh, on that uh, matter. So I think I would uh, stop it here and, and look forward, of course, to, to the discussions.